Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, him being Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. One of the most famous parables in all of the Bible. A parable is just a short story with a meaning behind it. And so obviously this is a fictional story, not the account of Jesus talking to this lawyer. But this lawyer asks Jesus a question and Jesus answers him in the form of a short story which has been famous for centuries ever since 2,000 years ago Jesus was around. And sometimes when you hear famous stories, when you hear things like the Good Samaritan, it can be so familiar to us that we overlook each and every verse. And I've never been one who likes to just believe what I'm told without questioning. I'm not one who likes to look at something and just take pat answers. A pat pat answer basically meaning an answer you just receive without actually thinking and internalizing and questioning. And so this parable I think we should look at and scrutinize because there's a lot of things in there I think we just look over when we're not taking the time to dig deep into God's word. For instance, verse 25 This lawyer comes up to Jesus and says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, place yourself in Jesus' shoes. You're Jesus. Not really, but let's pretend you're Jesus. This lawyer comes up to you and asks you, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, pretend you're not Jesus. Pretend this this is just an ordinary day. You're out at the mall with your friends, with your homies, with your posse, with your crew, with your squad, with your boo. No, not with your boo. And as you're out there, a guy comes up to you and asks you, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Hey, what should I do to get to heaven? What would you say? Just think about it for a second. What would you say? Someone asks you, I want to know how I can get to heaven. What would you say? Well, Jesus says something I think we wouldn't say. Most of us would reply by saying, Believe on Jesus and you will get to heaven. 
Did Jesus say that? Believe on me and you'll get to heaven. You'll inherit eternal life. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, what's written in the law and what is your reading of it? So now he's, he's like beating around the bush. Come on. Come on, Jesus. Obviously, you're supposed to give him the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, which is to just tell him the way to get to heaven, the way to inherit eternal life is just by believing on you. By faith we are saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. So why does he talk about the law? It's not about works. But he asks him, asks him a question about the law. And so the lawyer responds by saying, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus say? Yes, good, but you still have to believe in me. He doesn't say that. What does it say? It says in verse 28, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. Hold on, Jesus. I think Jesus is confused here. Maybe Jesus hasn't really gotten down the gospel because what he's telling him to do is to do something rather than just believing. So now this is just really confusing. Think about this. Why would Jesus direct him to the law? Why would he direct him to following rules rather than belief, faith, everything that we learned? It's like Jesus just throws it out and says, everyone else has to just believe on me, but you actually have to do something. And not just because remember what he says, the lawyer says, all right, but who is my neighbor? And so Jesus tells him this long story about this Samaritan guy, a priest and a Levite who walk by, see this guy who's half dead, pass by on the other side, and the Samaritan picks him up, heals him by taking care of his wounds, bandaging him, oil, and all these different things that would clean and soothe the wounds, brings him to an inn on his own donkey, mind you. And then when it's not enough, he stays the night. Think about that. Just an interruption in his day. Most of us don't want to even pull over when someone has a flat tire because it, it will kill us for like an hour. Here's a guy who, who throws out the entire day and the next day and says, I'm going to spend time with this guy because this guy I don't even know is more important than everything else that was on my list. Whereas you have a priest and a Levite, they're like, oh, well, maybe I have, I have things to do. I have a list. I have people to minister to. I have people to serve. Forget them. This guy says, the Samaritan says, I need to take care of this guy. I'm going to spend the night. And even beyond that, if there's anything I missed, here's some money. And he pays the innkeeper. And then we're learning about the Samaritan who does the seemingly impossible task. And Jesus says, you do that and you're going to live. That's kind of confusing. Why didn't Jesus say belief on me? Well, if you're not confused already, I believe that Jesus is far smarter than we are. Wouldn't you agree? Jesus knows a little bit more than you and I. And because of that, Jesus could see right into this man's heart and identify the real barrier that would keep him from accepting Jesus and believing on him. Because you see, if Jesus just said, believe on me and you'll be saved, perhaps this guy would have done what he, what he just did. Which is, did you notice that he just assumed that he was already keeping the first law? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I got that part. What about the neighbor part? He just assumes he's loving God. And Jesus decides to tell him, listen, there's something you're missing and let me draw it to the surface by asking you a question. What is your reading of the law? Because if you think, if you think you're doing all the right things and you don't need God for everything else, you're in trouble. Here's something we can learn from this. We must never turn sharing the gospel into a formula. 
We should never turn evangelism into a to-do list, into something we can just put into a box and bring to people. And so oftentimes when people evangelize, they don't want to evangelize because they don't know what to say. It's not about knowing what to say. It's about bringing that person to Jesus and let him do the talking. Evangelism is sharing Jesus, not sharing a set of ideas about Jesus. And when you can do that, now it's not about, I need to make sure I get this part and that part and this part. And oh my gosh, I forgot to tell him about the soon and coming king. Like I told him about the death, you know, and resurrection. I didn't tell him that Jesus is coming soon for them. And oh no, I th it's not about the formula. Let Jesus do the talking. You bring them to the word of God and the word is Christ. You do that and he'll do the rest. So what I love about Jesus is he can identify the heart issues and he deals with each and every person based on where they are struggling. Realize that when Jesus was talking to the rich young ruler, he said something very different from this, didn't he? Rich young ruler is talking to Jesus and Jesus tells him, sell all that you have. Now why didn't he tell me that? He didn't tell me that. Why isn't the gospel sell all that you guys have? Because that may or may not be the barrier keeping you from really believing on Jesus. What about the woman at the well? Jesus asked her a question to identify what was keeping her from accepting God. He said, all right, go and call your husband. She's like, uh, I actually don't have a husband. He's like, you're right, because you've had six husbands and none of them are your husband. It's like, ouch. He was identifying what was really keeping her from coming to faith in Jesus. Nicodemus, Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. And he's like, what are you talking about? How do I crawl back into my mom's womb and, and be born again? And Jesus is like, okay, stop. Mental image is terrible. Stop that. This is about being born of the Spirit, not being born of the flesh. So what are you trusting in that is keeping you from eternal life? And when we talk about eternal life here, they weren't talking about, and we've said this before, it's not days added to your life, it's life added to your days. It's not the quantity of your life that you inherit, it is the quality of life that you receive. So when you guys receive eternal life because you've trusted in Jesus, it's not like you, you get like, you know, just you were going to die and you weren't going to exist forever and now you will. It's that eternal life begins today so that the, the certain quality of life that you live is completely different because you've inherited Christ's life. That's why you're eternal, because the life that you receive now is the life that Jesus lived. And so that is the full, the rich life. It's Christ's very life. So in order to receive eternal life, we have to ask ourselves, what are we trusting in that would keep us from that kind of lifestyle? Well, as we saw already in verse 27 and uh, through 29, that this man said basically that he's, he's got it down, he's, lo he's loving God, but who is my neighbor? And we see in verse 29, he wanting to justify himself, asked, who is my neighbor? I think that it's, it, what's really interesting is we'll always justify ourselves. We always look at, we always look at the things that other people do and we judge them based on their actions. But when it comes to us, 
we internalize and we rationalize and we judge our motives. There's a guy, Stephen Covey, he said, we judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their behavior. It's kind of like when you have a friend who's not picking up the phone and maybe you've had a fight, you've had an argument, and then you tell that, you know, you're just completely mad at that person because you're like, oh, I can't believe it, like they're ignoring me, and you're just like thinking up all these different things, like this is completely wrong of them to be ignoring me. And then when you don't pick up your phone because your phone's on silent by accident, and your friends are getting mad at me, like, why can't they see that, like, it's not that big of a deal. I just, I really didn't have any ill intentions. I just didn't pick up my phone. Or when you've set, you know, a date with your friends and you, you want to hang out and your friends flake on you. It's like, how could they ever do that? And when you have to cancel, it's not really flaking. It's just that, you know, you had other things that you really had to do. Emergencies. You can't help it. It's because we look at everybody else and we'll always judge their behavior and we judge ourselves by our own intentions. And so here the lawyer wants to justify himself. And we have to be very careful that when we, when we read God's word, we're not looking at it to see what we're already doing right. But we're looking at it and we're honestly asking ourselves, is there something in this that I need, is there something in this that, that it's pointing to that I need to change in my life? Does the word of God want to convict me today of something that I'm doing wrong? Because here's the thing. In summary, what we're learning today about is love and loving your neighbor. That's easy to, to take in, right? That's, you all understand that. I'm not teaching you anything new. So why even come to this Bible study? It's because you're allowing God to speak to you individually tonight. You're saying, Lord, this may be a message for me. And I've already known this. You know, Paul said to the Philippians, for me to repeat this to you, it may be tedious, but it's safe. It's safe that you know these things. I'm repeating it so that you constantly remember to do the things that God is asking you to do. And there is no thing more important than the things that Jesus says here. Because in this you fulfill the whole law. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So ask yourself right now, are we truly coming to church and reading the Bible to hear God's voice? Or are we just going to justify ourselves? Because some people don't want to actually inherit eternal life. They just want God's eternal approval on their life, on their actions. They're not looking to inherit a different kind of life, to inherit Christ's life so they can go out into the world and change the world. They would be satisfied just knowing that God approves of everything that they do. And so it's kind of like, well, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty much doing that. I'm pretty much loving my neighbors because yesterday I loved my best friend. The day before that, I said thank you to my parents. And what Jesus is saying here is like, listen, there are things that you don't do, and that is a problem. There's, a thing, there's some things that the church doesn't do, and that is a problem. If you look at verse 30, and let's read it again closely. See if you can pick out a couple of things that maybe you've never thought of before. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing. This is, you know, very popular route. People know it. It's very dangerous. Um, I was going to, okay, so I was asked the other day if I wanted to go to uh, a city that can be very dangerous. And there's 300 gang members that are having like a rap battle. And if I wanted to go and preach the gospel to them. It's like, wow, what a way to go out, right? Just Alan Kahn was, had a, you know, he was ambitious. 
He had a promising life, and then he got shot to death by 300 gang members preaching the gospel to them. That'd be a way to go out. I still kind of want to do it. Who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? Here's a priest. A priest. This is his job, to care for people. He's walking down the road, by chance, and here's this guy who's half dead. Sees him. And walks on the other side of the road. Now, can you think of a time in which your friend was in need and you thought, oh, no. Oh, no. Well, I have to. I have to answer this call. I have to cancel my plans and be there for my person. I have to change everything because if I don't, I'll look so incompassionate. I'll look like a loser. Or maybe you think in the back of your mind, you know, there's a tragedy that happens. And you're still thinking, oh, my gosh, this ruins everything. Can't go on vacation. Here's the priest who saw him and passed on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, another guy who would kind of just help with the priest's duties, but not a priest. When he arrived at the place, came and looked. Now this guy actually walks by and looks at this guy half dead, and he passed by on the other side. What a heartless dude. Really? You're going to walk over and look. It's kind of like when you're in traffic and everyone slows down to see all the carnage and take pictures of it and just keeps on driving. Can you believe those people? But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three, I love how Jesus asks. It's like so obvious. Uh, you know, maybe there's a chance the priest was more neighborly. Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Well, if you just had to take a guess, you know, just take a guess. Who do you think was the most neighborly of all those three people? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. In our day, most of us feel, like, analyze yourself right now. Most of us feel like we're loving people. I feel like I'm a pretty loving person. If you ask me, am I loving? Yeah, I'm loving. Yeah, I love people all the time. But we all have people in our lives, don't we, that are thorns in our flesh. Right? To borrow the Christianese. People that just annoy us to death. There are certain people that we just do not get along with. And if it was, you know, if we could just get rid of these people, just kind of like sanction them to Africa, quarantine them, and they're just gone. Or, you know, Uganda or somewhere, somewhere far away where they could just be happy and live their own lives away from us. We would be the most perfect loving people on the planet. But for whatever reason, by chance, God places those people in our classrooms, in our homes, in every direction. And you just can't escape certain people. I remember when I was in high school, there was a kid who would always steal my fries during lunch, and it just bugged me to death. I know Zach hates that too, like when people take your fries, because I took him once and he just gave me the, the hairy eyebrow. He's just, he's very mad. But this kid would always steal my fries every single day, and the fries were the only good part in lunch. We all know that. I mean, come on. Like, lunch food is terrible. Fries are okay. And he'd steal my fries every single day. Moreover, he was the class nerd. So a nerd is bullying me and taking my fries. I was like, number one, 
this is terrible because I can't eat my fries. Number two, this is embarrassing because I'm being bullied by a nerd. If we could just get rid of them, that'd be okay. I love hearing this story from Brian Higgins. We were talking the other day about his uncle, who I feel is so similar to me. He went to a psychiatrist, Brian Higgins' uncle, went to a psychiatrist because he had a lot of anger issues. And he said to the psychiatrist, he sat down and he said, well, so the psychiatrist asked, what's your problem? And he says, I hate everyone and I hate everything about everyone. Fix me. <laughs> and sits back. <laughs> he actually drove the psychiatrist mad and she like quit her job or something like that. I feel like that some days. Don't you feel like that some days? You sit down and you're like, I hate everyone and I hate everything about everyone. Fix me. But seriously, though, we, we can all think of some people that seem to bring out the worst in all of us. Whether it's provoking us to anger, influencing us to do evil, tearing apart our relationships, hurting our loved ones. There are people in this world that just seem to always get on our nerves or hurt us, embarrass us, take advantage of us, hurt the people that we love, annoy the people that we love. And what makes this parable so striking is that the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. For more than 700 years, the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. Why? Because the Samaritans, 700 years prior to this story, they were half-breeds. The Assyrians, what they would do is, they were some of the most corrupt and despicable people that have ever lived in human history. They would do some terrible things. I, they're too graphic. I can't even ex explain here tonight. But basically they would make a certain terrorist group that we all know seem gentle. They would behead people and stockpile their heads in front of the gates of the city so that everyone else would fear uh, their nation. And so what the Assyrians did is instead of just taking over a city, in order to really conquer a city, they would have their men breed basically with whatever city they were conquering. And so the Assyrians bred with, um, they took over when they were taking Jerusalem captive, they were breeding in with the Jewish people, so they were half Jewish and half Assyrian people. And this is, this is what explains how Jonah was so angry and why Jonah hated the Assyrians so much, because Nineveh was that capital of that city. And says, God, how could you forgive those people? They are some of the most despicable people offering child sacrifices and all these terrible things. And so the Jewish people, moreover, beyond this, not only were they some of the most grotesque people, and they're a reminder constantly of uh, their captivity and how, how much, you know, terror and, and pain was going on for the Jewish people and persecution, but the Samaritans actually teamed up with the Romans during their time era. So they just completely hated Samaritans. Now, he, imagine being a Samaritan, and you're hated right off the bat by Jewish people Regardless of what you do, you're just born and people hate you. And they, they misuse you, treat you wrongly, everything. You know, just because of where you were born and where you were raised and your blood. And this Samaritan, who had no obligation to love a Jewish person, who was their enemy, steps out to do, not just, I'm going to make sure that he gets the, you know, the help he needs. I'm going to clean him up and leave him there. But he goes way beyond anyone, anything that you and I would normally do. You see, the lawyer was asking the wrong question. 
the question wasn't, who is my neighbor? The question really is, how can I be a neighbor? That's the question we must always ask as Christians. How can I be a neighbor? Now, who is my neighbor? Because the world always defines who to love and who to hate. But the Christian life is about how can I be a neighbor to every single person that exists? So what does it look like to be a neighbor? I can give you a couple pointers. Number one, neighbors love those who are in their sphere of influence. Each and every one of us has a sphere of influence. Whether it's your school, you're at a coffee shop, you're at your home, at work. Just imagine this, this uh, sphere that's hovering around you. Make it like 10 feet. And whenever you go somewhere, you're carrying this sphere with you. A sphere of influence. And whenever someone enters that sphere, now you have the opportunity to bless that person. Now you have the opportunity to love that person. I remember I was walking down in New York City. I think I've shared this before, but a couple years ago, I was walking by and there was a homeless girl who had a sign saying, just got kicked out of my house. Anything you can give can really help me. She was a young girl. She was probably about 19 or so. And I walked by the first time, walked by a second time, and, and both times, like, the Holy Spirit was convicting me. You call yourself a youth pastor. What's wrong with you? This poor lady. I'm thinking of a good Samaritan in my head. I'm like, no! And finally I walked up to the girl, and she was a jerk, but she, she really was. I started evangelizing to her, and she said, keep your money. And she, I was like, Psh. no wonder you got kicked out of your house. But, sorry, that was bad. It's true, though. Each and every one of us has a sphere of influence. That's, that shows why I'm evil and still a jerk. And God has to redeem more parts of my heart, sanctify me. Each and every one of us has a sphere of influence. And whenever you're having someone enter that sphere, that is a person that you get to show love to. Just today, um, there was a guy who was serving at Broken Loaves, and Broken Loaves was closed today. And he walked by. It's a guy I never really talked to, but he serves. And, and I got to pray with him because he was like, oh, man, I've just been having a rough day. And I got to just get around him. And he asked, he's like, you, you mind just praying for me? Of course I can pray for you. Yes! There's part of me, you know, he's, he was an older gentleman. It's part, part of me that's just like, he wants me to pray for him? Really? I'm this young kid. But he let me pray for him. And it was a blessing to me because I got to be a blessing to somebody else. And so many times we forget about that because we have too many things to do. We, we're like the priest. We pass on the other side because I'm too busy or I have too many important things to do. Or maybe it really... At the bottom of it, we think, I can't take care of this now because there's other things on my mind. I'm just, whatever. But let me ask you this. If you saw a baby drowning, you just saw one right now, wouldn't that take priority over everything that you have to do? Homework. I have to do my homework. Going to work. I have to, you know, I have to make sure I'm at my job. That should take priority because the baby's drowning and you need to save that baby. That doesn't mean that you set up a hospital every single time that, like, you know, you're outside. You're just always ready to save any babies that are around. That's not what the Samaritan did. He didn't set up a hospital on the side of the road. But how can we say that we care about people if we miss out on the most obvious need that's right in front of us? There's many times that I was in college and I was just so 
concerned about getting here because I was working part-time at the church doing junior high ministry and full-time doing schoolwork. And I was just so busy. I was actually studying for sermons here while I was at class at Monmouth University. And as soon as class was over, I would just jet. I would leave and come here because I was just tired. And it was just like, what's the point of even coming here? But in retrospect, that was my sphere of influence. There are people around me that needed saving. And that was a limited time period in which I'd be able to influence those people. I can't go back now. I have so many things to do here. Or when I was in the mindset that I wanted to pursue a music career, wanted to pursue a band, I overlooked the time that I was serving here in junior high ministry. Because I saw the band as real ministry. And when I make it as a band member and I can influence all these millions of people, the gospel will go out and it will be awesome. And when I was so focused on that, I was missing out on the opportunities that was right in front of me, ministering to a lot of you guys when you were like in sixth grade. So what need is right in front of you? Ask yourself that. Where have you known that you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit? Because everyone knows. Everyone look up here for a second. Each and every one of you has been, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, everybody look up here. Everybody. Everybody. Each and every one of you know when God's been tugging on your heart. Hey, you should talk to that person. Hey, you should pray for that person. Everyone knows what that, what that feels like if you have the Holy Spirit within you. So why do we ignore that voice? Why? Why do we not respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit? It's because we rationalize. We take our time. We're just like, well, it'd be weird. It'd be embarrassing. Well, who am I to even go up to this person and talk to them? I know there's one student who prayed for a teacher that just like CCS teacher, CCS teacher was feeling really down one day. It was just the worst day ever. And a student walked up to that person and said, hey, you look, you look pretty down today. Can I pray for you? And I'm sure that that student felt like, oh, this is weird. I'm praying for a teacher. But the teacher came up to me and said, that was the most, you know, amazing thing that I experienced in a long time. A student took their time to come up and pray to me, pray for me. You can do that because you have the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, don't you think that God is powerful enough to use your life to impact another life. It's not about conjuring things up and trying to pretend like you can do things. It's about just letting God's spirit move you. His, his conviction and his power move you. So the Levite, as we know, came and looked, passed by on the other side. And, and I think so many times we can be so immersed in the, in the machine of ministry that we cease to care about people. We're just so busy with schoolwork, so busy with so many things that don't matter that we cease to care about people. There's a mansion in California called the Winchester Mansion. And this mansion was um, owned by this one woman who felt like there was a curse upon the mansion and upon her. And if she stopped building in the mansion, she would die. But if she kept on building, she would inherit eternal life. It was really whacked out, really weird. You can go to this mansion today, and it's some of the most weird architecture ever because they constantly built for a really, really long time. But the things that they would build didn't seem to really make any sense because they always had to be building because of the curse. So you have staircases that don't lead anywhere. You have bathrooms with, you know, windows that are all kinds of weird shapes and whatever. The thing looks really weird because you have this machine where people are building stuff, but not really building anything with any purpose or any reason. And that's how we can, we can often view our lives 
if we just busy ourselves with things that don't matter. As we know, the Bible says, you know, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. So ask yourself, why am I doing these things? What am I building this for? Number two, neighbors have compassion for hurting people. And so the Samaritan had compassion. And that word I can't pronounce in the Greek. But it basically means this, according to the Strong's Concordance. To be moved as to one's bowels. Hence to be moved with compassion. Have compassion. So I know I laughed at that because I'm still immature. So back in those days, they believe, like we talk about feeling with our hearts. They felt with their bowels, their intestines. Really strange. But we still use this language a little bit when we say, I, I had this gut feeling. You know, you got butterflies in your stomach. And so they just believe that your seat of your emotions existed in your intestines. Really strange. So instead of being like, I love you with my hearts, I love you with my bowels. Weird. <laughs> I love you with my intestines. So let's bring it back now. But what, what they meant is that this idea of compassion is not just you should feel bad, but it was an event that happened to you. It wasn't about conjuring up emotion. It was genuine care that could be felt naturally. And so when Jesus had compassion on the multitudes, it's the same word here. He felt, he was moved with compassion. You see, compassion is an event that happens to, person, to a person. Compassion is not something that can be conjured up. And maybe you've experienced this in your own life. Someone tells you about what they're going through. And you either feel compassion and you can empathize with them. And you're crying with them. You're on the verge of tears because they're crying. Or a person's crying and whining and you're just like, oh my gosh. Well, I should show like I have compassion. I should show some compassion. And it's, it's not about conjuring up the emotion. It's genuine feeling inside of you because compassion is an event. Now, how do you get that? You can't just fake emotion. You can't just conjure it up. So what do you do? Well, this is where it is so key to have Christ's life be the same as your life. In other words, that you trust in Jesus to do that for you. Jesus has to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. If you don't have compassion for people, it's not about conjuring that up. It's about sitting down and saying, Lord, give me your heart for people. If you don't have a com uh, compassion for people around you, if you don't have passion to see lost souls come to life in Jesus, then it's time to start praying, Lord, would you give me your heart for your people? If you see people walk away from the Lord and you don't feel bad for them, it's time to start praying, Lord, would you start giving me your heart for, for your people? Give me the same heart that you have. It's something that Jesus has to put inside of you, not something that you can conjure up yourself. And this is what makes this whole message really key and really important for all of us today. That is, obedience must not come from obligation. Obedience must come from the proper motivation. In other words, when God asks us to do something, it must be motivated by love and not by the feeling of compulsion. Now think about this. And this is where everything connects right now in this entire message. Jesus asked this guy, um, rather this lawyer asked, this, asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him the law. 
Why does he do that? To show him it was impossible to fulfill apart from the heart that God gives. So we should look at this and not be like, all right, I'm going to try next time to feel bad for people. I'm going to try next time to take care of people. I'm going to try to spend some money on people, you know, do whatever it takes for people. It's not about putting yourself in a place where you're forced to do things because you have to. It's about getting to that place where you're motivated by love and you can't help it. It's not about, I'm going to go evangelizing because if I don't, then Alan's probably not going to think I'm a Christian. I'm going to come to youth group because if I don't, then people are going to start judging me. It's about, I want more of Jesus and I can't get enough of him. I love that song that we were singing last week. I can't get enough of your love. That Leland song. I just want to be where you are. I just want to be near your heart. And when you're near God's heart, everything transforms and everything changes. You start acting like the Samaritan who went to him, bandaged his wounds. In other words, neighbors heal and soothe hurting people. Neighbors are also self-sacrificial. This guy, he took him and he placed him on his own animal. This guy didn't even know this guy. He doesn't even know this guy and he takes him and puts him on his own animal while this neighbor was walking all the way to the inn. And neighbors also understand that love takes time. Spent the night, didn't go anywhere. In other words, he doesn't stop loving the guy until he's fully healed. How many of us love with that kind of love? Where you have a friend, and you're just kind of like doing what it takes, and like, yeah, if you need anything, let me know. See you later. Or you're saying, I want to be there for you until you're fully healed. And I'm thankful for certain friends in my life when I was going through tough times who took time out of their day, canceled their schedule, and just said, I'm going to be here for you as long as you need. And it wasn't like they're, they're hanging out with me and they're checking the phone like, uh, all right, well, you got to go. See you later. They let me say, you can go. And it's not like I was like this dictator. It's like, I, until I feel better, you're going to stay here. But do you have friends like that? Do you have friends that are willing to take time until you're all well, until you're restored? Everyone should have friends like that. And lastly, neighbors understand that love is costly. This guy spent some money, right? Love costs. You have to ask yourself, has loving other people, has love of Christ cost me something? Not like your salvation costs you something, but have I spent myself for other people? Have I gone out of my way to do something that would actually make me suffer a little bit. Because that's what true love is. And that's what being a neighbor actually is. In conclusion, 1 John 3.16 through 17 says this. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need. Yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? In other words, if you have resources, you have the ability to, and you see your brother in need, you see your brother hurting, and you don't do anything, how is it that God's love is really in you? So ask yourself this question. If you have been seeing people hurting and have not felt anything, could it be possible that you don't have God's love in you? 
Could it be possible that you don't truly understand what Jesus has done for you because Jesus was the good Samaritan? And we were the people that hated God, wanted nothing to do with God, yet Jesus came down and he bandaged our wounds. And he bore our iniquities. And he died for our sins. And he paid our price. Jesus did all that for us while we were his enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so taking that kind of love, really understanding what that means, should make us go out and do those same things for other people. And the reason why I say all this is once again, because I know what it's like to be a jerk. I know what it's like to not have that feeling. But I've taught myself this like six years ago probably about six years ago, I want to do the thing that's, that's least comfortable. If I don't want to do something, I'm, I'm going to do it. Because perhaps that's just me getting out of my comfort zone and stepping into where God wants me. And there will be times that I'm, I'm like, oh, I really don't feel like evangelizing. I do it anyway. There will be times that I'm like, oh, I don't know if I should really, I do it. Because it's not about how I feel. I've, I'm denying myself. I've put to death the flesh and now I'm, I want to live in the spirit so ask yourself have you been denying yourself have you been going out of your way to say you know what following Jesus means first deny myself and then following him because if that's the case then you need to start exercising spiritual disciplines reading your bible every day praying you know is it no wonder Zach is it no wonder that some of the most influential things that we can do in our Christian life are some of the hardest things to do, even though they're so simple. What is so hard about reading our Bibles every day? That's not really hard. I mean, physically, like, you read so many text messages a day. You read so many Facebook posts a day. What is so hard about reading a chapter of the Bible a day? Yeah, it's really hard. It's almost impossible, isn't it? Apart from the Spirit. Apart from God changing your heart. What's so impossible about prayer? You talk to yourself all the time. At least I do, right? I was driving for 12 hours from Tennessee up to Old Bridge by myself. The whole time I was making myself laugh. And I was like, I'm not even kidding. And I, thought, I was like, I just wish that someone was videotaping me and just like, wow, Alan is really crazy. So I was just like telling myself jokes and making myself laugh and like, not just like laugh a little bit, like laughing to the point that I'm like shaking un uncontrollably and you've seen it like before and like my stomach hurts and I'm driving. I'm like, this is dangerous, this is funny. That's easy. But praying for five minutes is hard sometimes. We start praying like, Lord, I pray for this person. Oh, a butterfly. Wow. <laughs> like, I really need to, check I need to check Facebook right now. I need to check my text messages right now. Even during the Bible study, you've probably been like, how many times did you check your phone while we're in the Bible study? Ooh, conviction. The things of the Spirit are impossible to do by the flesh. And that's why we need God's Spirit to enter us and fill us with His love. But if you walk in the Spirit, everything will change. Think about this. We're almost done. Don't worry. Think about this. You could have your life dramatically change forever today if you choose to. Why? Why do I say that? Because... There is eternal life. There is still eternal life that we can still enter into today. Let me show you this. I didn't plan on teaching this, but I'll show you this anyway. 
Hebrews chapter 10. Turn there really quick. Sorry, Hebrews chapter 4. I probably shared this before, but it's really cool. So I'll show you. Hebrews chapter 4. It says in verse 8, let's just go in verse 8. It says, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There, there remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. I said, I probably shared this before, but it still, to this day, it amazes me. Because the people of Israel were leaving Egypt, and as they were leaving Egypt, they didn't enter the kingdom of God. They didn't enter the promised land because of unbelief. What was the unbelief? They didn't believe that God could today bring them into the promised land. And so because they didn't believe that, think about the 12 spies, or the two spies, rather, that went out, or, you know, Caleb and Joshua, they went out, spying out the land of the promised land, and they saw the giants, and like, yeah, we could take them. Everyone else was like, oh, we're going to die. And because of their unbelief, they didn't enter the promised land. So we, in the same way, can forget that eternal life is not something that happens to us when we die. It's something that you can enter today, a full life today. And if you're not experiencing the eternal life, perhaps you're just not walking in it. Perhaps you don't really have it. It's just true. So that's why it says, there therefore remains a rest for the people of God. For he who has ceased from his works, um, enter his rest, has ceased from his works as God did from his. In other words, if you're still working, you're not resting. So stop working. If you are still working every single day, you're tired and anxious and all these other things, perhaps you're not really resting on what Christ has done for you. Perhaps you're not really have, you haven't entered that eternal life today. So everything we should do as a Christian should once again be out of the motivation of love, not, not out of obligation. Not about like, I better go evangelize this week, otherwise I'll be in trouble. I better go find some people to help, you know, be the good Samaritan this week. That's not your application today. If that's your application, you've already lost. What it really is, is about sitting before the Lord, waiting on his spirit, as Jesus told his disciples, he didn't say, all right, go out into the world and make disciples of everybody now. He said, wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And the day of Pentecost, that's when the tongues of fire came. The Holy Spirit came as a rushing wind and filled them all with the Spirit. And they naturally went out with, and preached with boldness. If you don't have boldness, what do you need to wait for? You need to wait for boldness. You need to wait for more of his Spirit. So all that to say, in closing tonight, who do you have to forgive who do you have to love? Who are you thinking about even right now that you know you're supposed to talk to about Jesus, invite to youth group? Who's the person you're supposed to reach out to but you've just been ignoring it because there's other things that you have to attend to? If you don't have compassion, if you don't naturally want to gravitate towards those people, perhaps you need a fresh feeling of the Holy Spirit this evening. So why don't you bow your heads right now and just in this time, let's just ask the Lord to fill us afresh.